afternoon and welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is session number 30 of Other Minds and Hands as we are doing part one of our Christmas special here this year. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Merry Christmas! We are, um, we are going to be talking about a Christmas Carol. We, I, we've been, we've been discussing for a while that, um, you know, we we want to look at some other examples. We were just talking about the Princess Bride last week. Uh, we want to look at some other examples of adaptations where we can be thinking about many of the issues that we've been talking about concerning adaptation in general, concerning Tolkien adaptation, but to apply it to some like test cases, some test cases that are very interesting, um, but which we don't necessarily have the same kind of emotional pressure, especially as regards the source text, right? Yeah. Um, I think that there are very many fewer people out there who are, I'm not saying they don't exist, like diehard Dickens purists. Oh, sure. Who hate all adaptations. Um, yeah. But not only is, of course, are those simply fewer, but also uh, they, uh, that there, it's, there have been so many adaptations over the last hundred years um, that <laughs> surely those people have been worn down by now uh, or reconciled to some extent. Anyway, so we're going to be looking, we're going to be doing two different sessions on this. And the idea is today we're going to be looking specifically at classic retelling. Um, oh, sorry, I'm joined by my uh, uh, furry sidekick here today. Um, uh, here we go. The, the furry sidekicks are in today. Um, so uh, today we're going to be looking at some classic retelling adaptations. These are adaptations, all of which, um, to one extent or another, you know, some closer, some further, um, are really looking to just retell the Christmas Carol story um, and, and are going to some lengths to be faithful uh, to the original text. Um, and then next week, we're going to look at some... Uh, uh, we're we're going to look at some of the uh, uh, inspired buys. Inspired buys. Yes, we're going to be yes. looking at some of the the ones where we're getting some more modulation. Those those uh, uh, those. What what uh, what's the word I keep using? It's the. Uh, it's going to say adaptation, but of course that's what we're talking about. Um, when you're doing uh, retellings, you were talking about that. Uh, these, these are retellings. Yeah. Darn it, what was the one I was talking about? It was the uh, when you. Rearrangement, that's what it is. Like oh, yeah. from, 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 from music. Like when you rearrange a piece of music for, for other instruments, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it is it is kind of like a fan fiction film. I, I they're can all see that. fan fiction. All adaptation that's what is all fan this fiction. Is. Without yeah. exception. All adaptation is fan fiction. There is no difference between an adaptation and fan fiction. Um, if you have In terms if, of creation, in terms of categorization, people argue that the people that made the content that can declare if it's canon or not. So like well, that's sure. always true. That's true of adaptations but, as well as fan fiction. Yeah, but the process 100% is just fan yeah. fiction. It's like, what else can we do with this? Go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's all of them alike, um, you know, whether it's written, which fan fiction generally is, or whether it's adapted for another medium, as adaptations generally are. Um, uh, you're, what you're talking about is a creative engagement with another text, right, with, with an original story. Um so, again, today, retellings. Next week, we're going to do the, some of the rearrangements and some of the inspirations and look at how, what I'm going to be especially interested there is how like, we can talk about their relationship with the original. Where yeah. issues, and again, if we're not 
hugely happy with the word faithful, right? As we've talked about before, that's the word people tend to use. And, and, you know, Maggie's argued, and I totally agree. It's an unnecessarily emotionally weighted word to use under these instances. Um, but what, what is their relationship with the original like? Um, so, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, JJ says, I think we need a week just of parodies. Now parody great. is a re yeah, I think we, yeah. Totally should do that, actually. Parody is a really interesting form of adaptation, and there, too, you can talk about some... It's really interesting to talk about the relationship uh, between the original and the adaptation. Sorry, my furry companion is being obstreperous and getting demoted <laughs> to the floor. Um, <laughs> so, no anyhow. Christmas spirit here. Um, okay, so... Uh, but let's start with the retelling. So the three retellings we chose, we wanted one of the classic films. There's a ton of them. Like there are a whole bunch of film adaptations of The Christmas Carol made from like 1930 through 19, you know, 70, basically. And uh, we so we just chose one, not quite at random, but pretty close to at random. There are a whole bunch of classic films. So we chose Scrooge from 1951. Uh, and then we... We're looking at two modern ones. Uh, I chose Mickey's Christmas Carol from Disney in 1983. Which I fully supported because that was one of my first exposures. To that was my very first exposure to yeah. Charles Dickens at all. I'm pretty sure that was the first. I know that was the first time I was ever exposed to. I, And reflecting on it, I'm pretty sure I saw that the year it dropped, actually. I think I think I saw that the very first time it, it dropped. Um, 1983? But, yeah, 1983, 1983. That year I was born, Corey. How's that feel? <laughs> there we go. I wasn't very old, but I'm pretty sure that must have been the time that I watched Although, it. Although, can I tell you, I, I read a fun fact about that, that it was made and released in 1983, but as part of the release of the Rescuers film. Ah. It wasn't released on its own on TV until the following year. Oh, okay. Okay, so it was in 84 that it was, well, that makes it even more likely that I saw it on the first yeah. year then. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, yeah, so I, I, so, and, 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 and it, I, don't, I don't think it's just me that has, that had that be their first exposure to the Christmas Carol. Um, that has been for a lot of people uh, <clears throat> a, a really kind of signature childhood introduction. Um, and, and it was clear what's more, I mean, it seems clear to me that Disney intended that short film to be yeah. like a kid's first introduction to Dickens' Christmas Carol, basically. And, and I know we'll get into it, but I hadn't rewatched it in a really long time. And the whole thing's on, on YouTube, which is handy. Um, but it's about 27 minutes. It's and short. When I was a kid growing up, I had no concept of time, I guess. But yeah, definitely felt like a whole wonderful story. And rewatching it, I didn't think that it lost much of the core. So really cool how they did that in 27 minutes. Yeah, that is the primary thing that struck me, too. I did get to rewatch all three and reread the book, too. Uh, 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 so I, I've been I done my homework for today. But that was the, totally the first thing that struck me. I looked it up. I yeah. watched it on Disney Plus and I was like, what? 26 yeah. minutes? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I totally remembered it being long. I mean, it makes sense. It was like a half hour TV special. Uh, yeah, but there's so many but... details in my mind about that one that I remember. And I'm like, all of that happened in 26 minutes? Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Um, I agree. It was, uh, it was, it was strange. 
It was yeah. strange. <laughs> so yeah, so we got the nineteen fifty one one was arbitrary. Mickey's Christmas Carol. And my favorite's The Muppets. The Muppet so Christmas Carol. It yeah. had to happen. So those yeah. are the three we're kind of focusing on tonight. But I also yeah. put like two random images on the last slide of just a few other adaptations that I had totally forgotten about. The Jim Carrey animated one. The um, I almost said the Jean-Luc Picard one. Um, the Patrick Stewart one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we've had, we've had a few iterations of this story. Um, but we're going to attempt to focus on just these three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep, we're going to focus on these three. So I want to be comparing and contrast. So there's this is it's kind of, it's going to be kind of a complicated conversation to try to have because on the one hand we want to compare them to each other, on the other hand I want to talk about all of their relationship with the book. Um, but of course, I also want to talk about what each one of them is doing themselves. Like what, you know, it's one of the things I always talk about with adaptations. The adaptation must tell a story which really stands you know on its own um it is its own story it's telling its own story what is this adaptation doing and what is it accomplishing and then go back and uh uh compare it to um compare it to the original text anyway okay is that a is that a copy of the first edition of the christmas carol that this it person is, yeah. with, the, with the with the white gloves is holding over here in this picture yep yeah color illustrations that is tray chic fancy yeah wow okay um all right this is the first one alistair sim playing scrooge in his first great dramatic comedy role what is that even a dramatic, dramatic comedy, role? comedy yeah is that a thing <laughs> like, it wasn't to my knowledge yeah but was a little, uh, little strange. I was reading about this one too, and it was apparently made and released as part of the Radio City Music Hall Christmas show, and it was too grim. It, it wasn't family friendly enough, so they ended up pulling it, and they did a theatrical release. But yeah, it didn't didn't last for the Christmas extravaganza. But even that was really interesting. They did the theatrical release, and it was hugely popular in the UK, like massive following, great reviews, and completely bombed. People hated it in the US. Huh. So just in terms of like an adaptation and audience too, I feel like that's an interesting conversation of like cultural expectation. That like is really interesting. This story is grim and dark and, and rainy with a pure heart. So therefore it's British. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't have bows and rainbows and kisses at the end. So it's not American. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it was a little grim. I mean, there were definitely things that I was noticing that they did, um, well, frankly, there were things I was noticing that they did in the Muppet Christmas Carol that they cut from the Mickey one, for instance, mm. uh, that I thought were they were embracing a little bit more of the grimness, um, uh, even in the Muppets compared to the Mickey one. The Mickey one is the least grim of all of them. Um, but um, but yeah, no, it is interesting. Uh, mm. It is. That's it, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so one of the things that really struck me, I, this was both the way in which the 1951 film deviates from the book most, I thought. It seemed to me the biggest deviation. Um, and to become a really, well, literally the central core of the film. I mean, the, the Ghost of Christmas Past 
should have gotten paid massive overtime uh, for this film. Got a lot of screen time. Holy cow. The Ghost of Christmas Past was worked like a rented mule in this film. Uh, It was, it was, there were two times, maybe three times as many historical scenes that Scrooge went, they did all the ones from the book. Mm. Um, But then they added a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of others. Now this, I was particularly interested by this, strain. Um, and one of the reasons I was interested in it is that this strain was wholly absent from the other two adaptations. Um, this is the, 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 the Muppets did a lot from the book. They stayed pretty close to the book, but there was one major element that the Muppet adaptation completely removed. And that's the sister, his dead sister, sister. Right. Um, and thereby it downplayed, um, the Mickey's version almost wholly downplays the importance of Fred the nephew, right? He's there, right? Donald Duck plays Fred the nephew. Yeah. And we get that reference at the end where Scrooge says he's going to go to his house for dinner, right? We meets him in the road, doesn't he, right? And says, yeah. I'm going to go to your house for dinner. And, and you know, Donald Fred says, um, uh, you, know, uh, that, you know, that's great. Uh, you know, I'm, we'll be delighted to later. have you. And, yeah. and that's it, right? Um so he's there. The Fred character, the nephew, is is present, but he's a he's a very very marginalized. Whereas like Cratchit and Tiny Tim are like huge, right? The whole focus, and indeed that's where we follow Scrooge um, after his conversion experience. Right when he wakes up on Christmas morning, it's all about showing up at the Cratchits with a bag of toys, right? Whereas yeah. in the book, he never goes to the Cratchits on Christmas Day, right? Which is retained by the. Uh, by both of the other two adaptations, right? He doesn't see Bob Cratchit until work the next day, right? Um, But in any case, uh, the emphasis in the 1951 edition, they not only do this scene, so this is the scene in the 1951 edition. So that's young Scrooge there on the right, uh, young Scrooge at school, um, way too old uh, to be at school. I mean, he's supposed to be like 13 or something like that. Um, he's, he's at, he's off at boarding school basically. Uh, and his sister who is also way younger, she was like nine or something really. I mean, she was, she, she was quite young, um, in the book, in this scene, she shows up and she is like a little you catastrophe in his life. Like he's at school, he's unhappy at school, but he's primarily unhappy at school because his father is mean, right? His father sent him away to school. And, and, and there's all of this implication that the, the Scrooge father is, uh, is a, you know, a very harsh figure, but the sister, the loved sister, uh, shows up, um, and says like you know, father has relented. He says you can come home. He's uh, you're much com- nicer now, which like he's much you know, nicer now. Yeah, he's changed. Yeah, he's changed, and um, and uh, you know, you can come home forever. Like it's not just you can come home for Christmas. It's you can come home forever. You don't have to stay at this horrid school anymore. Um, so he's being. It's his sister who is this agent of deliverance and bringing joy into his life and freeing him from his really unpleasant life at school. Um, so that's how it happens in the book, right? And we get, and that memory is the sort of pivotal memory, which Dickens rather gently, especially for Dickens, right? I mean, you have to get up pretty in the, pretty early in the morning 
to be more overt and beating people over the head with your meaning than Dickens is, right? Okay, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, Dickens does not mess around. When he wants you to get a point, you get the point. <laughs> He's pretty right? blunt, yeah. Yeah, he punches you in the face with that. Um, He's in my, like, top five authors of all time who, like, will not let you miss the point if they really want to make it, right? But on the Dickens scale, he's quite gentle about the fact that of how important uh, Scrooge's sister was to him and how she is associated with the coming of joy into his dark life, right? Yeah. And then, of course, we are rem- we, we, we remember the encounter with Fred, right? When Fred comes in and he is attempting to be this agent of joy in Uncle Scrooge's life when he's inviting him to dinner and everything, and Scrooge's rebuff of him. And the reference to the fact, like, we know that the sister died, and that, um, but he leaves it, again, really admirable restraint for Dickens. He leaves it to us to kind of make that connection. Wait a second. The son, Fred, the nephew is the only child of this loved sister who was right. herself this representative of joy. And so in turning away from Fred, he is neglecting, he's turning, not only not only is he neglecting his sister and any kind of, you know, responsibility he might have felt for his sister, but he's also, um, you know, has turned away from like the joy that she brought into his, you know, so you can see the correlation between the loss of his sister and the, you know, sort of the cold, dark, uh, cynical life that he has locked himself into. Well, and also an interesting process because it felt like that kind of humanized him a little bit because you felt a little sympathy that he couldn't even engage with that representation of his sister. Yeah. Like it it was a real emotional kind of anchor for that grief to just not engage with it completely. That was his coping mechanism. So I feel like the one that included that, that was this was really effective. I definitely had an issue with the age of the characters. It was hard to step away from that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, grandparents aside, (laughs) it it was a really lovely relationship. And you can see how that kind of anchored him in this past. But again, like the past is so big in this one. So big. That like, it just feels like the overarching push is just like, remember who you were as opposed to who you could be. Absolutely. And I thought that was real interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we got... We got so not only do we get this scene right, but it got emphasized even more. And what was the element that I was noticing that again the film was just harping on in ways that that Dickens did not. He kind of left it. You could go there, but he didn't force it. Was the parallel between Scrooge and his father? Um, hmm. It was made explicitly clear that Scrooge, in becoming the mean, hardened person that he was, and especially in his coldness towards Fred, that he was just recapitulating his father's yeah. own cruelty uh, and um, sort of just taking out on the next generation exactly what he experienced as a child. Uh, the parallels between them got <laughs> was like stopped just shy of creepy actually when it came to like observing how much the sister looked like her mother at her age and everything and i was like okay um let's 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 stop the train before we go any further in that direction but anyway i mean it was it was it was made very explicit but anyway so not only do they do that like through this scene and in this scene they absolutely like double and triple down on this by giving a deathbed scene to the sister. This is one of the new Christmas past scenes that we got. We actually, again, Dickens left the death of the sister sort of quietly in the background, right? Here we get this front and center deathbed of the sister, Scrooge's like grief and sadness and regret. 
and her dying like Ebenezer, take care of my boy, take care of my boy, Ebenezer, right? To like just absolutely beat home into your face that his 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 neglect. And of course, you know, with the, the agent Scrooge duty. watching this, right? Yeah. Um so again it was it was they were I was <laughs> I actually so I actually watched this third. I watched uh, I watched them in like sequence of my like familiarity. I started with Mickey and then I watched the Muppets and then I watched this. So after having noted, it was one of the things that I had noticed in the two Disney ones that um, that the sister was pretty much missing in both of them. And I was like, boy, we're making up for for lost sister this in, in this one. Holy cow! Um, so it, so that that element of and I agree, Maggie. The overall trajectory that it ended up providing right was that was the sense of scrooge had lost something like he had something he had been given something and and, and not yeah. just not just that like he used to be a bright happy boy and then he became like mean and sad right but like he was on this mean sad trajectory then saved yeah. from it right by his sister and then he went back to it right so this this kind of um yes like what he was what he should have been was really, uh, you know, not just here's what you are and what you should change into, right? Yeah, I feel like that just puts so much onus on him, though. And I feel like she was the one that made him good. Yeah. So the loss of her was not just the grief. He couldn't pull himself out of it. But it's like, no, she kind of put that on him. So with her out of the picture, is he actually just that crabby of a human? Right. You know, maybe. Right. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is the scene where at the end, like as young Scrooge is walking out, um, the guy who I assume is the doctor who is there um, makes explicit, like points him over to young baby Fred because she's dying in childbirth. She's just giving birth to Fred. That's why she's dying. She's dying in, on, on, in childbed here. So infant Fred is crying in the corner and Scrooge is like standing next to the cradle and looking down and the, the peril is made explicit that his father, Scrooge's father was so hard on him and hated him because Scrooge's mother died in childbirth, giving birth to him. And now his sister dies in childbirth, giving birth to Fred. And here and we he, are. And he hates, resents yeah. Fred because he took his sister away. Um, and so, like this, I mean, it was extremely overt the like generational repetition yeah. there, and of course, being made very, very much, um, very much clearer to um, uh, to uh, you know old Scrooge as he's watching yeah. on. Um, Phil asks the very sensible question: Where's Fred's dad? I think uh, Scrooge's that. sister was like artificially inseminated or something because there didn't really seem They'd to be an issue. About it. Never, never, never even once referred to. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, Edith, I agree. Yeah, exactly. The book never mentions the father. You can, you do have, I did think Edith that what they were playing up in that, I mean, way up, uh, in that scene in the 51 film, I think the implication was there when Scrooge was at school, there is the reference to the father relenting and saying he could come home. The father is referred to there. But we don't get all the backstory with the father. And so I but the, the idea of the father relenting contains like that very concept contains within it the idea that the father is harsh or had been harsh. And notice also it contains within it the idea of this like adult conversion. Right. Scrooge's father has had some kind of change. Uh, yeah. I don't know if, you know, 
ghosts were involved or not, but uh, but he had some kind of change experience as well, right? So the parallels, but it's so gentle. Like, he barely, barely refers to it. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, All right. Um, Ambrose is Charlene. Fred's dad is the young man who puts a hand on Scrooge's shoulder as Scrooge stormed out of the room. We don't see his face, but he's there. Oh, is that? Is I thought that was the doctor. Is it? I yeah. Thought, I, I don't, I mean... I guess it could be either. We don't really know, but it's interesting that you could infer that from that visual, but then we still have no presence of him in his life. And the clear onus is for Scrooge to be the caretaker. So like, even yeah. if that was his father, we assume he's out of the picture or not capable or something because take care <laughs> yeah. of him, Ebenezer. Yeah, exactly. Line. She herself doesn't yeah. seem to be a very, no. very, have a very large view of the role that the, the father's going to play in yeah. the future child's life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah, he know. dies of heartbreak the next week or something. I don't know, but Right. Yeah. Who 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 knows? Maybe he's already yeah. maybe died in the war. Is there a war? I don't know if there's a war. I don't even know when this is. When, when was this written? 1847, 18 Yeah, mid 1850s. I don't remember the exact hang okay. on a second. It's probably on that page, isn't it? No, not on the page. Oh, it'll be on the next page. Um anyway. I'll go Google it. Yeah. Uh Mid mid eighteen eighteen hundreds, uh, I know, right, right, right near the middle of the century. Forty three. Forty three. Thank you, JJ. Um, yeah, but I don't know. Actually, it's not a it's not a historically situated story. Like mm. we're not given any cues to know when Scrooge's story is meant to be taking place. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh. Yeah. Okay. So. Um. So sister, huge, and, and and we can see the shape that they're giving to Scrooge's story. First of all, can we take note of the fact that they titled the film Scrooge, right? To sort of really, and I, I, there's sufficient emphasis on Scrooge in this story under any circumstances, right? But by by calling it not a Christmas Carol but Scrooge, Scrooge. Um, they are really emphasizing like this is about the life of Scrooge. Um, uh, I mean, even that's a really interesting thought. I never, I've never actually thought about the title, yeah. A Christmas Carol. Right. I mean, this is not A Christmas Carol. That's Jingle Bells, you know? Like, yes, yes. Interesting. And by yeah. the way, that was another thing that I was, a little side thing that I was noticing. The use of actual Christmas carols yeah. in this, like they used a bunch of traditional Christmas carols. Um, also, they added way more Bible quotations to this script than... Yeah, there was a lot of reading from the Bible in yeah, this one. Yeah, than were uh -huh. in the original. It was a, a yeah. very... This was a much more Christian-focused retelling. And I'm not saying than other versions. I'm saying than the original. Uh, I mean, he, they included much more... Uh, I mean, it's one of the things about... Um, it's, I mean, it's one of the noticeable things about A Christmas Carol, a Dickens Christmas Carol, is that there's lots and lots of emphasis on Christmas and the spirit of Christmas, but actually almost nothing about Christianity or, you know, Christ or right. <laughs> anything like that. Right. It's right? just the holiday. It's yeah. It's just it's the holiday. It's about, you know, the spirit and the attitude Keeping towards Christmas other people. In your and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Keeping Christmas in your hearts um, and kind of defining or redefining what that means exactly yeah. right but not ever going back to the only gesture 
at it is the line which gets reproduced in almost every version. Um, what Bob Cratchit quotes from Tiny Tim when he takes Tiny Tim to church, he's just come back from church with Tiny Tim, and how Tiny Tim says that he likes to be seen on Christmas to uh, remind people of who makes the the, the lame to walk and the blind, to see, and right? blind to see, right? Um, that reference, that indirect reference to Jesus and his healing miracles is like one of the only it, yeah. references to Jesus or Christianity in the Christmas Carol. It's not a very, it's, it's not involved with scripture. It's not, it's not really in that sense, a, it's not really a theological work at all. This film was way more theological and way more yeah. scripture focused and included many of the traditional Christmas carols um, at beginning, not only at beginning and end, but uh, in other places as well. So just taking it back to the Dickens title, why do you think he titled it Christmas Carol as opposed to something like Scrooge? I think, well, I mean, so, marketability is my first thought. Wait, wait, what'd you say? Marketability? Marketability was my first thought. I mean, if he's a serial writer and this is coming out around December, yeah, Scrooge, well, people don't understand what that means, but a nice Christmas story, maybe. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, so, I mean, what is a, Christmas Carol like you know what is he invoking exactly by calling it a Christmas Carol a Christmas Carol is a a traditional song that is sung at Christmas time right a song about the season right to spread good cheer about the season we have of course a Christmas caroler in the story, right? Who comes to mm -hmm. the door singing the a door. Christmas carol and, and, and hoping for a handout, right? Um, there is a way in which the marketing of it is kind of uh, not self-complimentary, right? That is, he's kind of paralleling, in a sense, his story with... The poor person knocking at your door, singing a Christmas carol and asking for a handout, <laughs> basically. Like, that's one of the chief associations with Christmas carols in London in the 19th century. Um, yeah. So, uh, um, so th there's, I, there's, a, I don't, there's a slight, I think, um, kind of self-deprecating uh, uh, element uh, of it there. But um, uh, anyway... Um, was this one of Dickens' stories that was serialized? This story, I believe, was intended and, in fact, performed. Uh, it was intended for stage performance. Um, he used to go around doing readings. Uh, Doctor Who fans may remember uh, in The Ninth Doctor, back at the, in season one of The New Who with Christopher Eccleston, um, the Charles Dickens episode there. Uh, Charles We're Dickens talking about Cardiff. this next week, right? Uh, no, that is not the one we're going to talk about next week, um, though we could. Glad we checked. Yeah, yeah, though we could. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, that is so. The, the 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 one in season one is when uh, Rose and the Doctor go back and see Charles Dickens in Cardiff, um, and uh, he's he's there traveling, supporting or, or performing. A Christmas Carol on stage, doing a dramatic reading uh, of the Christmas Carol on stage, and that was the thing that he he actually did. So I think that that was the intention of the Christmas Carol. Um, so there was totally mar yes with the maid who gets possessed. That's that's the one. Yes, yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. that one. Yeah, um, 
Yeah. Uh, no, the one I want to talk about next week is the uh, the Christmas special episode called A Christmas Carol, the the Matt Smith one uh, from uh, from later on where they're doing a, where they're doing a, a straight up adaptation. Well, I say straight up. They're doing a, 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 a you know, a, a, a modulation of it. Anyhow, but a very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Discussion yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. OK. But uh, back to back to Scrooge here. In addition to um, uh, in, in addition to adding all this extra sister stuff, it kept going. Like we got like three more scenes. Um, not only did we get the Fizzywig uh, moment of like the Christmas party that Fizzywig threw, right, which is in every single adaptation. Um, and, you know, how he remembers how happy he was as an apprentice. And we get a glimpse there of, like, a younger, happier Scrooge. Yeah. Usually we get a, a, an indication of a younger, happier Scrooge there. Um, and uh, and when he meets the woman that he should have married, right? Um, Belle. Belle, yeah. Um, so here, however, we got that, and then we got more, right? We got, like... Fizzywig trying to be bought out yeah. by the cutthroat modern competitors who then... Yeah, there's this whole business Yeah, this whole business thing. Like, who then recruit like, Scrooge to come and leave Fizzywig and work for them instead. And then we yeah. get the boardroom scene, right, where the, I forget his name, the invented character, the guy at the head of the table there, who is the cutthroat yeah. business dude who ran Fizzywig out of business and then uh, recruited Scrooge. Uh, who is second from the left there. Uh, this is uh, medium young Scrooge. So that's Marley uh, on the far left. Uh, and uh, and now they're, this is, they're, they're doing their like hostile takeover of the board to like show how the guy, the cutthroat business guy has been exposed as like a, a crook and an embezzler. And they're not only, you know, Scrooge and Marley are not only turning a blind eye on this, but they're taking advantage of the opportunity to seize controlling power over the, over the corporation. And that this is how Scrooge and Marley is going to be built. And that, you know, so all of this, um, all of this, uh, business stuff, is a complete addition on the part of this adaptation. We get no hint of this kind of thing. And what we're seeing, what they make, they, 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 they're showing the progression, right? They're showing the steps by which Scrooge descends from the happy, you know, cheerful, upright guy that he was before and the stages by which he descends into becoming the horrible miser that we know. It's like they thought, like they wanted to play up the happiness and goodness of earlier Scrooge, but thought it was too jarring just to jump to the hideous miser we yeah. see at the end. And they're like, no, we want to we want to we want to show how he got there. We want to we want to yeah, really the whole... lay those groundworks about how miserable everything was. Yeah. 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 Um. Yes, I mean, that was, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I agree with JJ there. Like, he did seem pretty happy about it. Like, there was a certain maniacal joy of of his awfulness. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I I was getting at with the sister, too. Like, I do wonder if just at his core, he's not a good person. He just had good people around him. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, and having him be the focus of it, calling it Scrooge, like that does just give it like we're gonna follow this person's story. It's not like I feel like the other ones, like Ebenezer, is our main character, but we all see ourselves in him as well. Like it feels a little bit more universal. This felt very like here's this dude we're gonna follow, and here's his entire life story. Yes. Yes, exactly. And one of the consequences of this is that there was there was something to be recognized. Like when he had his change at the end. What I mean, what I felt they were sort of building was here is Scrooge, not just transformed out of all recognition. Right. But this is Scrooge. He has reset his course. Right. He has gone back and it's almost like a butterfly wing phenomenon kind of situation. Mm -hmm. Right. Like where if he had gone back and been able to undo one of the things that happened in the past, here's how his life might have ended up. Right now, it doesn't change. Like, you know, he's not actually married and, you know, with a happy family or anything like there are some things. Obviously, nothing actually has changed from the past, but he has changed. Right. But he becomes like the person. And it's I, I felt like they were trying to build in his final scenes this sort of recognition of this is him as the person he should have been, the person that he, that he might have been had he made different of these choices. And they've shown us all the choices at every stage along the way um, that led him down that wrong path. Um, So it's much more of a kind of what if, whereas I felt that both of the other two, um, both of the Disney ones we're really playing up instead like a, a total transformation. Like Scrooge has become someone that he really never was. Like it's, it's a, it's yeah. a, you know, to everyone else, it's a, an entirely unaccountable. Now it's unaccountable to other, his contemporaries, right? Like the maid, which he has, which he absolutely terrifies in the 1951, which is like the scene with him chasing her down the stairs and stuff was like, <laughs> was like whoa. Again, I was reading about that. And apparently he was that cruel to her as an actor too. Like she had really terrible things to say about him. I'm like, well, there it is. Oh man. Well, on screen. Like, is that, is that kind of his method acting? I don't, I don't really know. But, I don't know. I think yeah. it's just, no, I'll just leave it. No. Yeah. Anyway. But um, but yeah, so it's 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 clear that it's it's very strange to everyone around him. But again, but to the viewer. Right. We just as Scrooge was placed in a privileged position by the spirits. Right. To view all of these things from a distance and see the whole trajectory and the causes of everything. He was able to now come. So we, too, as viewers, have also been accompanying the spirits and seeing all of these things. And we're in this privileged position to recognize in the new Scrooge, like the old Scrooge, as he should have been. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So that is what I kind of felt was going on uh, in the 1951 edition. Yeah. Um, and it was... I think that, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these scenes that they added, a lot of the stuff that they didn't do, some of it I thought was merely making more explicit, which again, I did not think Dickens left much scope for making things more explicit, but I was proven wrong by this adaptation. Um, uh, They, um, I, I thought that in general, they were following pretty well. Um, the the things that were being laid down by the 
by the text. Um, I couldn't help but notice, by the way, um, or I couldn't help but think about. So there were several points in watching these when I was kind of thinking about Tolkien adaptations, right? And I'm thinking, like, in a Tolkien adaptation, if there were this many added scenes, right, where they were just, yeah. like, there would be riots about this many added scenes to the story, you know? Especially, like, drawing out, adding in backstories and motivations and things, like the really intricate thing, the really emphatic thing that they did in the parallel between Scrooge and his father, right? Yeah. Um I, that was, um, uh, yeah. So Phil, Phil's asking, did they, they preserved the core of the original. They expanded the core of the original. It feels like, I feel like we're, we can see into their writer's room. I feel like we can see that group sitting around a table saying, I've got an idea. What if we did this? And they just went off on this crazy tangent and nobody reeled them in. I mean, all of it works, but I think that wouldn't get made now because we would have cut at least three of those scenes because they weren't necessary. Yeah. I don't think they're necessary, but I guess I can see the conversation where they were like, but this will show that he was really a jerk or, you know. Right, right. This is why this is, he this had is this the, kind of decision. This is the step when he's only 25% to jerk and now here's right. 75% to jerk. And yeah. 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 And I think this and, is and the I, moment. I mean, I guess I can see, like, what you're saying, too, with, with the Tolkien. Obviously, like, when things are created, that's a real difficult territory for creators. Because if you're going to make something new, there better be a good reason. You better have, you know, the approval of the creator. Like, all these things that can just backfire so quickly. Yeah. Especially if you've cut stuff. So if you removed things from the text and then put in new stuff, what the H are you doing, you know? Right. So that, well, that kind of idea. It's a I really interesting with, question. Yeah. Which is Which is worse? Which, which is harder, which is, and, and, and by harder, I mean that in a couple different ways, harder on people, right? Which do people yeah. take harder cuts or ads in, in an adaptation? And secondly, which, um, what is harder in terms of making the relationship between this source and the, and the, and the adaptation more challenging, like, which is easier to pull off well to add stuff or to cut stuff. Sure. Well, and it depends on what you're cutting and what you're adding, of course. Yeah. I mean, when we look back to Princess Bride, oh my goodness, you know, so much was cut and so much was added and it worked so well yes. that you can just really appreciate the process. But again, that was also the creator making those decisions. So it's real hard to tell them that you did it wrong. Right. Whereas yeah. if somebody else is taking up the helm of somebody's work and making the changes, well, you've bastardized it. You have destroyed it. You have betrayed it. You know, there's that's when all those words come in again that yeah. I think can be a bit yeah. tougher. Yeah. Um, yeah nice it's to a, see the response here. Everybody's more bothered by ads. Yeah. Yeah. I was interested to see and that. And I, I wonder if that's the creator thing, too. Like, yeah, who are you to add into my work? Right. The first, the first time I saw that Dark is Rising adaptation and I heard an American accent coming out of that kid, I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> you can't right. do that to my characters. Right, yeah. right. Um, it does cut. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, obviously, it makes a huge difference what's being added and what's being cut, as you say. Yeah. Um, but okay. kind of, if we can sort of theoretically assume that the, you know, the parameters are like equivalent in some sense. Yeah. Um, I do think that. So one challenge, of course, cutting. Cutting is inescapable especially when you're doing a film, 
right? Yeah. Because it's, and by the way, this is one of the things that makes a Christmas Carol um, almost a bad data point for adaptation because it's very short. I mean, it's it's a novella in any case. It's yeah. not like a full length novel, um, certainly on the Dickens scale. Um, and when you're making a feature film, the the equivalent literary genre to feature film is not the novel; it's the short story. Yeah. Uh, you just cannot tell the length and complexity of a novel length story in a feature film. Um, that's why every adaptation of every novel you've ever read that's been adapted has been cut savagely in order to make it into uh, the 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 feature film length. And so anyway, so that's 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 just a, a sort of reality. And, and that's I, I wonder if that's one of the reasons why people are objecting to ads more, because it seems like like you have to cut like there's nothing you can do but cut um, yeah. if you're going to try to fit it into a movie. Um, even the Christmas Carol can't be done, even though it's short, can't be done. I mean, the unabridged audio is four hours, so that's still yeah. too long for a feature film. Um, but um, uh yeah, that's what I, mean, I was just saying. Cuts are expected in adaptations and additions are seen as arrogance. Yes. Arrogance, yeah. You know, and, and I think it was Eamon Moto earlier that said, you know, if you're putting something in, you're putting yourself on level with the creator. And that does kind of smack of arrogance, but that person is also a creator. You know, like if, so, if you win the yeah. Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, that's your work. It that's might be inspired work. by something else, but... Yeah, I, I totally see where the emotion comes from. That's what's so tricky about this. Yeah. And again, like I said, if you're cutting something I love and adding in something that's not even there, what the heck are you doing? Right. But yeah, this was to me, this was the thing that turned the corner for me. This is what changed my relationship with adaptations years ago. I felt when I was sitting down to watch the Peter Jackson films, the emotional reaction I had was as if Peter Jackson was handing me a new copy of The Fellowship of the Ring with all these bits cut out and all these changes made and asking me to accept that as the Ooh. new fellowship of the ring. Like, and I'm like, no, that is not okay. I refuse. Right. Um, yeah. and I feel like that's kind of, even if they don't put it in those terms, that seems to be the kind of real, I mean, like think about the, 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 the things that we've seen people saying for the last year. Right. Um, like when people talk about what what the Rings of Power is quote doing to Tolkien, it's not doing yeah. anything to Tolkien. Tolkien remains yes. unaltered, right? Yeah. It, again, it's it's that it's it is as if like they're reacting as if they're asking you to accept. Here's here, I'm going to alter Tolkien and I'm handling that to you, or I'm going to add a new chapter. I'm going to go back and I'm going to write a new chapter to the Lord of the Rings and shove it in there, and ask you to accept that as the Lord of the Rings. That would be arrogance, right? But that's yeah. that's not what an adaptation is ever doing. Even when they're adding, um, is there, like, there's a little more chutzpah in adding, for sure. There's no question. But is it inappropriate? I don't think it's inappropriate. Um, I mean, well, what they're handing you is a separate thing. It's not the Yeah, original. and I think that's the real difference. I mean, again, I'm so glad we did Princess Bride last week because when you're thinking about something like that, it's not necessarily arrogance to remove something or making the decision that this is better than that, it's that this works better than that. You know, yeah. if if what you're trying to get across is a motivation or a tone or an action or a feeling, sometimes it's not words that will get that done. It's a visual or it's, you know, the, I don't know, it's just, it can be so many different factors that 
where you can tell it a different way. So maybe we do have to change that and we don't need that scene anymore because what we need is momentum. And that scene, that doesn't work in, in words. Let's do it with this instead on screen. Yeah, 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 exactly. At the end of the day, the adaptation is the creative project of the adapter, right? Of the adapting team. I mean, it's the whole team, right? It's the screenplay writer, it's the directors, it's the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's the producers, it's the actors, it's everybody involved, as we've talked about. But, um, but it is a new thing on its own. Um, now, it's true. Now, so like, what's happening here again in the in the nineteen fifty one with all these added scenes? What they are doing is what is essentially an interpretive addition. Yeah. Right. They are adding an, an element to the story that wasn't there, not in the sense of bringing in, like introducing a brand new character or something like that, like or changing. No, but the seemingly plot. to explain this element of the yes. character that we can already see. Yes. They're drawing this. They're, they're basically saying, like, we're going to give you more details from Scrooge's background that will help you to explain that will enable you to contextualize and explain better where he is at the beginning of the story and where he gets to at the end of the story. And so they are, these are essentially interpretive, right? Uh, and that's, that is interesting, right? I mean, that, that is an, that is a, uh, that is a bold move in that sense, yeah. because they are basically saying, it seems like they're saying, we believe that we're getting, you know, to the heart of what was, of what Dickens was suggesting, right? Or, 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 and that might yeah. seem arrogant, but at the same time, it's not any more arrogant than what any of us who analyze literature do. When we I was going to say, that's it. a very academic yeah. attitude. Like, yeah. let me explain let me why explain. Scrooge is so mean, <laughs> yes. you know, and I'm going to give you four extra scenes to show you exactly why. Like, yeah. there is a certain amount of arrogance in there that does smack of like a, a smug professor. <laughs> It, it, that, it that did, I can see it, that. Yeah, it did strike me as exactly yeah. that kind of uh, that kind of interpretive assertion. Yeah, basically. And I and you know just thinking a bit more about this edition uh, change thing, like there's all those things. I definitely think an adaptation is allowed to do these things. The creator is in charge, but there's also this element of the contract with the audience. And there's loads of theorists that talk about this, but. If you're taking a known work and you're changing it, you must be aware of what the potential reaction could be. Yes. You don't have to do anything about it, but it's your own risk. It's your own neck on the line if you don't do anything about it. But you have to be aware of what your audience is expecting. And if you're going to manipulate that, if you're going to mess with it, then try to mitigate. You know, so like try to have that conversation or be prepared to explain why you did what you did. So if you do have a professor answer saying, well, I wanted to show you the backstory of Scrooge and why he was so cruel, that's why we added, okay, cool. But if you just change something for the sake of changing something and don't have any kind of honor or attention or care or awareness, then we all get pissed. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yep, yeah, exactly. All right, all right, so we've let's... spent like an hour on 1951. We still have Mickey. Yeah, and we totally, to get we totally do. Um, <laughs> we totally do. Um, I would emphasize, yeah. So that the 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 happy Scrooge with Tiny Tim was something that I thought was really interesting. Um, we, I won't talk about it too much because you said we we spent a lot of time talking about 1951 already. Um, but we, I felt like we got more time with the reformed Scrooge at the end of 1951 than we get in any of the others uh, as yeah. well. More shots of him just being happy, uh, just being happy and making other people happy. We, 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 we get lots of that in the Muppets as well, but um, very but much. But that works 
And that really worked with the bookend. You know, we had all that yeah. backstory of him being cruel and, and why. And then we get the happy Scrooge at the end. That that worked as like a, and that's probably why we're talking about this one more because we haven't looked at it before. So it's still kind of like interesting and new. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, all right, Mickey's Christmas Carol. Um, one oh, of the Mickey. things that was fascinating to, and again, this was another one of those things that didn't really register much um, when I was watching it when I was nine, uh, was that. Um, This was, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the cast, right? Okay. Like. You mean the cartoon characters? The or cartoon the character actors? cast. Great. Yes. Right. This was interesting because this came out in 83, 84. This was a really interesting era of Disney. I'm, I'm not going to go through all the history because I haven't written it all down. But I remember watching all the Imagineering um documentaries on Disney Plus and stuff. And like, this was when some major changes were happening at the studio. So they went from this like classic cartoon fairy tale era, and then they were moving into this kind of weird, we're not really sure what we do. And then we got the boom in the nineties with Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and Lion King that kind of brought it back to their animation roots. So this one I thought was really interesting because it basically was like, the cameo appearances of all their favorite best animated things. Yes. And, and it was, it was like they were doing a cartoon stage play in which they had cast as roles in the Christmas Carol play. Yeah. Recognizable characters who remained themselves while playing the roles of the, I mean, so, you know, the, you had Jiminy Cricket, playing the role of the ghost of Christmas past while still being, you know, making no bones about remaining Jiminy Cricket the whole time or the, you know, the giant from Jack and the Beanstalk, right. Um, who was playing the role of the ghost of Christmas present. Um, but, uh, and I agree the strangest casting of all, um, uh, JJ, yeah, uh, Donald Duck being cast as Fred. Yeah, I mean it made sense since they had, you know, Scrooge, uh, the, you know, like uh, Scrooge McDuck being cast as Ebenezer Scrooge for it's obvious reasons. Yeah, um, and so you had the you know the younger nephew Duck, uh, which worked fine. But yes, Donald being a consistently happy, cheerful, optimistic character was very dis- was very. <laughs> I kept expecting Donald to like take the wreath and jump up and down on it in fury, you know, when, when, uh, uh, when, <laughs> when swing Scrooge around his bill and yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, but anyway, that was, it's, it was, that was to me one of the bizarre elements of this. And it's, it gave the whole thing, this air of, there was an interesting air of, I want to say the suspension of the suspension of reality, right? Like I, as a viewer was kept at a distance. Like I was constantly reminded of the fact that I'm not losing myself in the world of the Christmas Carol. I am hearing a retelling of the story. And I'm I'm not watching characters play roles. I'm watching Mickey play a role. Exactly. Exactly. Just like uh, what it reminded me of, what it reminded me of was like a church Christmas pageant Right. Where you've mm-hmm. got like somebody playing Joseph and somebody playing Mary and somebody playing baby Jesus and whatever. Um, and like 
there isn't really an attempt for the kind of realism, like there's no suspension of disbelief there, right? When you watch this, you're not like transported, like to, you know, to turn of the millennium Bethlehem or something. It is very much like a sort of ritual reenactment of a story. And you're very conscious of the people who are playing the roles. And there's not any of that kind. It does not demand secondary belief to use Tolkien's term. Right. You don't lose yourself in it. And it's the same with the Muppets, isn't it? Yes. Just going through that list of characters and like everybody plays. Exactly the same with the Muppets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes more explicitly than others. Um, (laughs) Well, and I don't even count uh, like animal, for instance. Uh, It was a lovely animal appearance. uh, Yeah. 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 (laughs) Beaker's actually called by name. Beaker. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah. And then um, there's the whole, uh, you know, well, Gonzo is in a different situation anyway. We'll come back to Gonzo because he's one of the most interesting characters to me as a character uh, yeah. in, uh, in that. But um, uh, but anyway, yeah, it, it's it is both of these. I felt Mickey's Christmas Carol to a greater degree, um, but both of them are. And it kind of it comes back to what we were saying about Christmas Carol, right? How it's like supposed to be not just a song that you sing, but a song that you sing every year. Um, the singing of it itself is a kind of ritual, right? Yeah. So that's to me that's one of the primary marketing elements of the title that Dickens gave the book originally. It's like I want you not just to read this book for Christmas this year. I want you to read this book every Christmas, right? Yeah. Which, like, he pretty much succeeded in uh, for, you know, 170, 180 years or whatever. Um, but, um, uh, my goodness, it is almost 180, isn't it? Yeah. We are almost back 200 years around to uh, uh, wow. the 1840s. Uh, but anyhow, um, so, yeah. Okay, so one of the things that I found most striking. We won't spend too much time on on Mickey. Uh, I want to focus on the rest of the time that we have on the Muppets, primarily. Um, But I was interested in the fact that Scrooge is made to look utterly insane. Like, Mm. at the end of Mickey's Christmas Carol, Scrooge wakes up and has a psychotic break, right? And this is like, he's out in the street in his pajamas and slippers. Um, they, they, he's destroyed his hat by trying to put it on instead of his boots, right? And then he puts it on and, and is going around and everyone is, like, terrified of him. Um, the, the way that they... The way that they handle Scrooge at the end, I, I found I found it very remarkable. The most remarkable element of the of their adaptation, because it's like they were they were perceiving the same gap. Like, how do we bridge the gap between Scrooge at the beginning and Scrooge at the end? Right, yeah. his change of heart, and of course, all of the 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 whole intention of the story, right, is that our experience with Scrooge of the various visions prepare us to like uh, ourselves in spirit to be ready for Scrooge's change at the end. But the change is nevertheless extremely sudden, especially to everybody else in the story. And that the Mickey's version, uh, that the Mickey Mouse version really presents this as if he has absolutely gone insane. Like it's, they almost make it into a, like a bad or a questionable thing. Like, I almost feel like we as viewers are invited 
to view his change as instability, as near. I mean, it was. It, it, I, I found it. It came. I mean, it's funnier, right? I mean, they're playing it up for comedy, yeah. um, and there were elements of it that were comical. And I vaguely remember enjoying that as a child and laughing at the antics of Scrooge. But even that fact, the fact that we were invited to laugh at him at the end yeah, and, is a, and it is was, an odd dynamic. And it was manic. Yeah. And, yes. like, and the more you're talking about it, the more I'm like, oh, yeah, it just reminded me of like Jim Carrey's humor, Robin Williams humor. It was just that kind of over the top hyper hyperbole, you know, and yes. maybe that's what they had to do. They only had 26 minutes. And that's a really clear, simple way that kids and adults and everybody else can understand A to B is very different because A was this. So let's make it totally crazy yeah. for round two. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's right. JJ says, so the moral of the story is anyone who isn't greedy and selfish is utterly insane. It didn't quite end up there, but it can it, it like flirts with that <laughs> with that conclusion. I mean, it's kind of hard. Um, yeah. The uh, uh, oh, here's the giant as the ghost of Christmas present. Um, by the way, the ghost of Christmas present contains an element there were two elements that I would point to that all of the adaptations missed, uh, that all of them dropped from the original. One of them is about the ghost of Christmas present, his torch, the torch of the ghost of Christmas present, um, which we did not get here. But I, anyway, the, I found actually the the um, the giant from Jack and the Beanstalk here, who is cast as the Ghost of Christmas Present, was the most jarring of the cameo appearances in this whole thing, I felt. See, I, I feel like I knew this one first before I knew Dickens. So I think even when yeah, I, I did too. But. Yeah, when I went back and listened to or read or watched Christmas Carol, I was still hearing pistachios in my head you know, with right. that bit like that's this feels like the norm for me right. it's an interesting choice when you do it in comparison because it just make him look like a buffoon yes. and whereas you know I really love the Muppet one where he's just a forgetful levity he lives in the moment pure yes. giant of a creature whereas this is just a bit of a dunce yes no I, I did agree I felt that the ghost of Christmas present in the um uh, in the Muppets, I felt was closest uh, to to the book. Um, uh, classic moments. I notice, by the way, here how the Mickey's Christmas Carol plays up the poverty of the Cratchits. Um, they've at least got a decent goose in every other <laughs> yeah. version. This one, but. Yeah, I put this one in just because this is one of the scenes. Well, these two gifts are the ones that I remember so vividly from my childhood to the point that I've been on Etsy looking for that door knocker. <laughs> like, I, I want it in my life. Um, but the slicing of the pea, I just remember that so vividly. And now I can look at it with a little more analysis eyes. And it probably is that hyperbole. Like, we have pages and pages and pages in dickens where they talk about the poverty of the cratchits and how hard he works and how much of a stingy man scrooge is but the, you get that in this one scene he is perfectly happy to slice his pea with a knife and a fork yes and tiny tim is such a genuine lovely soul offers him his drumstick and he says no so you do get that that little moment that's all you need we don't need pages and pages and pages of text yeah we have a sweet kind child which was raised by a sweet kind man who is willing to share, but has very little to share. Yeah. Got it. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that was really, really, I agree that, that, uh, that scene is really well done. Um, and, uh, so now I do think that there are, again, it's hard. It's, I don't want to over criticize Mickey's Christmas Carol because it's so short. Um, it's, yeah. it's, they're, they're doing so much in so little time. So you can see some of the exaggerations that they make, but, um, it's uh, a perfect intro Christmas Carol. Yeah. You know, it takes all the boxes. It is. Now, I was also glad that it omitted, I think Muppets does too, doesn't it? Um, the two children under the cloak of the ghost of Christmas future. Yes. Holy cow. Holy cow. I almost forgot about that. We know that that was a present. It was, it was ghost of, the end of the ghost of Christmas present. When the ghost of Christmas present in the 1951 version, when he's like, and I have one more thing to show you. And he starts to open up his robe. I was like, no. Oh my goodness. What's the worst thing that you could have inside of a man's robe? Two children. Two children. Right. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's not as bad as I thought. Well, I know it's worse actually than I thought. Terrible. And they gave the girl these horrific fake teeth. Like, oh. Yes. But I mean, even in even in like other versions, you know, we'll talk about Scrooge next week. But that that image of the two children under the cloak has just always really stuck with me. And uh, it's been a bit haunting. So I was, I was pretty glad that they were not present in the Disney version. Yes. <laughs> yes. Agreed. Um, and by the way, that's the other element like that. There are many allegorical elements in the in Dickens original. And that's the only scene. As creepy and unfortunate as that scene was in the 1951 version, um, it's it's the it was the only moment in any of these three adaptations where they really attempted any of the allegorical elements. Um, the representation of the spirits was explicitly designed to be allegorical, um, and yet very little of it. I mean, they all pretty much keep the Grim Reaper element of the of the the final, uh, you know, the spirit of uh, Christmas yet to come. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. JJ, isn't it interesting that this picture doesn't include Scrooge at all? This isn't the original cover. Let me look at that real quick because this one I just thought was pretty. I think this was actually an advert for one of the concerts where they play the score along with the movie. Okay. The original cover. I swear he's on it. I think he's right in the middle. Oh, yeah, the original one has the title at the top, a picture in a vignette of the Muppets, and then the street and Scrooge walking towards you on it. So it's like title, Muppets, Scrooge. So Scrooge takes up the bottom third of it. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. That's right. Good. Uh, Phil is posting uh, a JPEG of that. Yep. Right. Yeah, it's on the Wikipedia page. Fab. Um, um, yeah. and I just put a little fun fact there because I thought that was interesting. It came out the same time as Home Alone 2 and Aladdin, so it didn't do very well at all in the box office, but has such longevity um, in popular reception. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, what are some... You uh, you chose some of these scenes here. What are, what are some of the uh, elements that you're I love it when I get here? to throw Corey. He's like, I didn't tell you to put these in here. I'm like, no, these are the things that I love from yeah. this movie. Um, well, the ghost of Christmas past is not like my favorite laugh out loud moment, but I thought his visual depiction was phenomenal. How he's a solid, like three feet 
taller than anybody else in there. And the way his arms are an extra couple of feet long. Oh, the Ghost uh, of Christmas yet, yet, yet to come, you mean up there come. on the top? Yeah. 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 Just the proportions of it. Um, I just thought it was a really interesting visual. Yes. The other three is the incorporation of modern humor into a period adaptation and how well it works. Like that heat wave one, when I first saw that, I like laughed out loud as a child. It feels like Christmas, one of the best songs I've ever seen in a movie. It's one of those beautiful words and lovely lyrics. And then Rizzo getting frozen into a popsicle and, and Gonzo smashing him on a table. Like these were just really beautiful moments that give it character, but I thought were smart changes from the adaptation because it wasn't it wasn't based on Dickens, obviously, but it worked in the spirit of the story and made you laugh, but it didn't take away from the action that was happening. Yeah. Um uh, not gonna, not gonna lie. I uh, laughed out loud at the heat wave moment. So good. The day before yesterday, when I saw it. So I actually, when I was watching this movie, this week, for the first ten, fifteen minutes, I was like, I'm not sure I've ever seen this in my life. When you said that to me, I was like, How are we friends? I know. And then we got to some place where we're like, Okay, no, no, no. I remember that. Like, okay. I definitely seen this. Um, uh, but can you recite it verbatim yet? Because no, absolutely not. No, and so I was. So instead, I was having that delightful experience, which is my absolute favorite part of getting old, um, which is when I'm. I basically I'm seeing something for the first time again because I've again. not seen it for 25 <laughs> years, right? Um, like I never thought it was possible to recapture the experience of seeing something for the very first time or reading something for the very first time. And I found like, if you live long enough, you get the chance. Maybe I'll live long <laughs> enough to get it again later on. I don't know. That's but, comforting. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, I was, so I realized that I had indeed seen it and I think more than once, but I know it had not been for 25 years, at least that I've seen it. So, wow. Um, so yeah, it, it, this was brand new to me that I was, Let's talk about Gonzo and Rizzo a little bit, because, of course, this is an element that they. So on the one hand, they are doing like Muppets, the Mickey's Christmas Carol, as you said, it very much casting role, not every role. Right. Like, you know, the ghost of Christmas present there is not a recognizable Muppet character or anything. Right. Um, right. They're they sprinkle the uh, story liberally with recognizable characters. Um, but they don't just hold, um, you know, the same, like they don't, it's not just like the Muppet cast is going to be doing this. So like, you know, 100% of the roles have to be cast as recognizable Muppets or anything like that. Um, but the and, the, and the rules are a bit fluid too, you know, like there's Rizzo eating an apple, but there's also a cart of fruit singing. Yes. So is fruit sentient? Right. <laughs> is, is, is... right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Exactly. No, there were, um, yeah, you've got like the penguins uh, in the square in, in London, right? In 19th mm -hmm. century London. Um and yet there are other places where they're, I mean, you know, the scene with the lamplighter applying his trade, right, is sort of, you know, so you've got times when they're Moments. being explicitly period and other times when they're, you know, deviating from uh, period and place as well. Um, yes. Uh, so, Sarah, um, Statler and Waldorf play Marley. Um, and Marley. 
and Marley, which is why, I mean, I had the same reaction that I do not doubt I had when I first saw the film, when they're like, it's, you know, Marley, Marley and Scrooge. And I was like, what? Like, right. why are, you know, like, no, yeah. the first line was the Marleys were dead. And I'm like, wait, Marley's plural. Why are there Marley's plural? I don't understand why there's more than one. Why are we, why are we multiplying Marley's? Right. And of course it's because they're played by Statler and Waldorf. That was the one place where it seemed to me they were making a significant alteration to the plot of the story in order to accommodate Muppet casting because they wanted both Statler and Waldorf to be. And yet it changed nothing in the purpose or the deliverable, you know? Right. Right. No, it was pretty innocuous, though. It was another one of those things where I was thinking if they did that in a Tolkien adaptation, people would be losing their minds over this. Right. Like if you just uh, if you took a single character and made him into two people just so that you could cast two actors that you wanted to cast both in that role. Oh, my goodness. Well, and ironically, Um, like 90 percent of the time in adaptations, it's the other way around. You're combining characters Yes. Because you don't have enough time to get everybody right. stage. Right. Exactly. And and it was because the whole like the the smallness of the change made to the plot by multiplying the Marleys, right? Um, that that argument works the other way around too, right? You could also say, why do it? Like it had no yeah. significant effect. I mean, like okay, you got Statler and Waldorf in, but like what does it? How is it worth it? How how is it worth the cost of making a significant change to the plot by having by adding a Robert Marley who was also who also I guess died on the same day for some reason that Jacob Marley Car did? Car accident. Right? Who knows? Apparently, um, maybe they caught the same disease. Who knows? Um, and like, what what gain do you have from pro from pro, proliferating that? And um, Eric's counter argument I think is the correct one, which is yes. that. Um, it allowed their wonderful song, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it I, it just facilitated all the joy from this otherwise not flat character. That's that's a disservice to Dickens, but it, it's a facilitating character. His whole purpose is to bring the message of foreboding doom to to Scrooge, whereas this we got a song and dance and chains and and hysteric, hysterics. Yeah. yeah, another element, of course. So Statler and Waldorf are the critics. Right, they're the critics yeah. from the balcony in the Muppet Show, and uh, they not only got to reprise that role as the young Marleys at uh, Fozzywig's right uh, party, um, but they there is a moment they commented on the famous joke, right? On the F- Fozzywig speech? No, no, no. Yeah, well, there's that oh, joke. No, no, one. they commented on Scrooge's famous pun. There's more of gravy than of grave about you. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, what a terrible pun. Right. (laughs) Um, They respond in Statler and Waldorf fashion. And that was really fascinating. Right. Because it was one of those places where it's it's pulling it's pulling back. There were several moments, several ways in which this was a small one, but I thought a significant one in which the this particular adaptation, again, like Mickey's Christmas Carol, pulls us away from the story, it brings us much closer in. I mean, goodness knows you can get much more engaged. There are fewer interruptions to your emotional engagement with the story um, in the Muppet version than there were in Mickey's version. Uh, 
Um, uh, though, uh, for the record, I cried at the end of all three of them. I just want to make Aww. that clear. Like I, there's not like a happy ending makes me cry like every time. And, uh, oh man, like, uh, God bless us, everyone. Like, oh, forget about it. Um, but anyhow, anyway, Statler and Waldorf, excuse me, Marley and Marley, right? Um, commenting on how bad Scrooge's pun was. Not, because not, not only was he quoting the book there, but he's quoting a very famous line in the book. And at the moment when this famous line is quoted, um, Marley and Marley sound and act like Statler and Waldorf, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, that was, I, I just, I, as I said, I thought that that was a fascinating kind of distancing um, of us in that moment. Um, and I think in, in, in one sense, it serves, you know, Jade was just saying, I was just realizing how genuinely creepy the Muppet version would be for small children. Um, this scene, of course, is meant to be scary. And I felt that this kind of um, peek behind the scenes, right, that they give, the, this reminder that we get that this is just Statler and Waldorf playing Marley. You're not actually seeing the unquiet spirit of a tormented or one or more tormented souls, right? Um, that's where the horror, uh, the terror could come from here. Um, uh, in, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a child's, uh, viewing of it. Yeah. And that gets a little bit, I mean, there was a little bit of, she does not get eaten by the eels at this time, uh, about that. If you see what I mean. Yeah. But yeah. I, JJ, the 1951 version was actually quite terrifying. I fully agree that that ghost depiction with the jaw bandage was yes. haunting. Pardon the pun, but was it was it was totally agree. Totally Ironically, agree. I remember being a kid and always being bored by the Marley and Marley bit of the Muppets, and now I'm like that part's great. But yeah, <laughs> it didn't it didn't terrify or creep out. I just wanted to get back to other things. <laughs> yeah, we don't have time for it now, um, but um, JJ was provoking me to do some poetic analysis of Ooh. the. Uh, song of the Marley and Marley song, um, which we did on Twitter uh, a couple days ago. Um, I'm not going to go over it right now because it would take the rest of our time. Uh, and I don't want to spend the rest of our time talking about uh, the metrical nuances of the the verses of their song. But it's really cool. Maybe we could open next week with that. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah, it's... Um, it's 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 really it's really sophisticated the way they handle the syncopation of the main line and then the extra syllables, lots of extra syllables. Um, it's really fun. Uh, but anyway, I won't I won't I won't get into that right now. Um, I kind of want you to do that with all the songs, though, because the Ghost of Christmas present one has always been my favorite of like just the lyrics too. of yep. it's season to be jolly and merry, the season of the soul in December. Like, oh, it's just lovely. Cool. Oh, nice. JJ said he put a screenshot of the analysis oh, on nice. Discord. Nice. Awesome. Um, Thanks, very good. Um, this scene of uh, Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim coming home, singing their little duet, is like one of the most lovable, cheerful sequences Golly. in the history of film. I, yeah. I just like, I, I don't know anything else. 
it's hard to think of anything more adorable than this. And interesting when you're thinking adaptation, this is not the tone we get from Dickens. No. But this is the tone we get from Kermit and how I think Kermit would handle something sad like a, a poorly son. And again, a lovely song with a beam, boom, boom. You feel like yeah. you're on a Disney ride listening to it. Yep. It's just lovely. Yeah. And and of course, what it does. Um, so this is, as you say, the tone is not very Dickens in itself. But what it does is it sets up the later reference to when yeah. he's coming home and he's late after Tim's death. Right. In, in the in the Christmas, he had to come visit to the Cratchit home. And he's uh, he hasn't walked as fast coming home, yeah. you know, uh, uh, in the last few days. And um, the oh, feeding the ducks, that whole bit. Yeah, yeah exactly. And yeah. The, the 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 memory of this moment, right, of him coming home with Tiny Tim on his shoulder, um, it it does really pick up and isolate a detail. And because, you know, the son says uh, Peter, I think, says that, you know, he always walked along quite briskly with Tiny Tim on his shoulder. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that we're actually that we not only see that, but feel it right yeah. through this through this scene is really powerful and sets up that scene really, really powerfully uh, as well. So um, it 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 still does accomplish something, I think, for the story, which is not alien uh, to Dickens, though the method is alien to Dickens sure. in a sense. Yeah. And I am facilitating using the tools we've got to get the story across. Yeah. And I am tempted to draw yet another parallel that this is exactly the kind of thing that a lot of Tolkien people would be saying, that is so not Tolkien like that. (laughs) Like just as a Dickens fan might say, that is so not Dickens like that. You know, that is that is not. Well, it, it, I, f- I fully agree people would lose their mind because yeah. there's just diehards that are going to get mad about any change. But if the Muppets did Tolkien, this would make sense for them to break into song and have a jolly little jaunt as they travel through the Shire. Yep. Yep. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. Yeah. And, but it, it's, it's, I think it's a really interesting element and an interesting illustration of how by doing something different, and both this and the Statler and Waldorf thing are both examples of how by intruding their agenda, as it were, right, on the original, um, they're going to add a whole nother Marley in order to bring Statler and Waldorf in, right? They're yep. going to add this extra scene where we get a Kermit Bebop moment, right, with yep. Tiny Tim, Neither of which is in the original, both of which one could argue does violence to the original and does violence in a way which is like egregiously Muppetesque, right? Yeah. Like we're being Muppets at the expense of Dickens. Yeah. I mean, again, a, a hostile viewer could argue that in both cases, right? Would and, argue that in yeah, both cases. Would argue that, yeah. presumably. Yeah. Um, yeah. But both, but. but both work, not just yeah. work, but actually, I think interestingly convey something that Dickens was getting at, right? They are they're not just giving us Dickens straight up, but in their own way, they are both of them still interacting with the text in some fascinating ways. I think that Statler and Waldorf are a fascinating casting for Marley. I mean, I could I could I could do like (laughs) We could do a whole session talking about Marley and Marley and, sure. and Statler and Waldorf there. Um, 
I think it's a brilliant casting um, and suggests some fascinating things about Jacob Marley's role in the story, about the Jacob Marley character and his relationship with Scrooge, um, the way that that, uh, they are the bitter Muppets, right? They're the stodgy, old, bitter Muppets. Stuck in their way, saying the same thing. Who are distanced from everyone else, right? They're never part of the community. They're always, uh, they're always up in the balcony uh, at a physical distance from everyone else. They map onto Scrooge really well, right? Like even just just having them appear, Marley is always making contact with Scrooge, right? Like it's it's the likeness between the two of them that is the whole premise of Marley's appearance and message to Scrooge, and. The ca- again, the casting of Statler and Waldorf is genius in that yeah. regard. Um, but yeah, so you have to be you have to be patient. You have to be willing to say not just to see differences, because both of yeah. those are very significant differences from the original. Even to the point of adding a whole second Marley, which would seem like a preposterous idea, right? And yeah, and it's not the kind of thing like. You have to be. You don't. We can't make you. But why would you rid yourself of that joy? You know, <laughs> right. like be open to Muppets telling Dickens. Because again, you know, going back to the universality thing, like all of a sudden, so many people can relate to this stodgy old 1840s story because you've put somebody in it that I can relate to, like Statler and Waldorf, because they're my favorite Muppets, or you know, whatever yeah. your tie to it is. Um, I love the conversation that's happening in the chat right now, but it also reminds me, sorry, I have a really runny nose. It also reminds me of a thread I saw on Twitter the other night where somebody somebody did a casting of Les Mis with Muppets. Yeah. And their casting was just so spot on <laughs> that I feel like the Muppets are just these wonderful tools and advocates for adaptation acceptance because you could put the Muppets in anything and nobody's going to get pissed at them. They're going to think it's wonderful if you handle it well. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's just I, I found these those are such illustrative moments. Um, yeah. Yeah. Even. Yeah. There's another example I could point to, but we're just about out of time. We should at least mention Gonzo being cast as Charles Dickens, because this so was good. an element that the uh, that the Muppet adds the Muppet version adds that none of the rest of them touched. The which is this, Dickens. yeah, this this sort of yeah. meta uh, story moment, right? Where we actually we got a narrator, we got Dickens himself depicted, though we were continuously reminded that it was not, in fact, not Charles Dickens, Dickens but <laughs> that it was Gonzo playing the role of Charles Dickens, um, with his sidekick Rizzo the Rat, who was appearing, which you saw in the opening credits, Rizzo the Rat as himself, right? Yeah. Um, by the way, just that, that the way that the opening the credits announce the yeah. fact that these people are playing these roles, you know, these yeah. Muppets are playing these roles. Um, and we're, we're not there is no desire for us to forget that this is Gonzo, that that's Kermit, mm-hmm. you know, that that's Miss Piggy. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, that that made me again on Twitter. We were talking about um, seeing this on stage when we were kids and somebody said, you know, I remember my first experience with it was being cast as Scrooge. And, and one of my first was not being cast as the ghost of Christmas present. Cause I really wanted to be a past right. ghost of Christmas past. And I didn't get it, but I got core. So then learned everything, right. but there is something about this. Like everybody must've done this in elementary school for a solid decade, at least. Cause we all have this shared collective memory of growing up, learning this play 
So I do wonder if there was a conversation of let's tap into that. Let's make this like a stage play. And it was following the success of the Disney one that there was this model they could already follow. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, um, it was, I found it was a very interesting mitigating element. Mitigating the, I was talking about how the, the casting of Disney characters of like Mickey Mouse world characters as characters of the story in Mickey's Christmas Carol had the effect of distancing me from the story persistently. Right. Um, I felt that that was moderated in the Muppet version by the Gonzo Dickens character, Mm. because although it was recognizably and explicitly Gonzo, he was always in character, almost always in character. Right. Um, And was, you know, despite Rizzo's skepticism, uh, he always did, in fact, like he was, in fact, an omniscient narrator. Um, even though, you know, he, he, he drew comic attention to the fact that he was an omniscient narrator. Um, but he was like, he did know what was going on and he was giving us, uh, he was giving us the story. And so like over Rizzo's objections, we, you know, we could be drawn into the story through that, but then we kept, we kept getting comic relief from Rizzo throughout. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, which was, I wasn't sure. Rizzo the Rat is probably, is the the element of this whole movie that I'm least certain about. Okay, because it's such a departure. I mean, he's really only there for comic relief. Yes, and, and he was also like an audience surrogate, right? I mean, he was the one who the story was being told to. And, but I found him a sort of distracting audience surrogate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, it was interesting that he was an audience surrogate, but he's an audience surrogate who's never paying attention. Yeah. He right? kept interrupting and being like, wait, what? Yes. Yes. Now, I mean, there were moments when he gets carried up in it, right? Like when he's collapsing, weeping, uh, when Bell leaves young Scrooge, for instance. Um, and he gets all caught up in things at the end. Um, but for much of the story, Rizzo is a sort of resistant audience uh, of the uh, of the of the story. And I don't know. I found that hard. I think uh, I think I would have liked less Rizzo, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if everyone agrees with me on that. I don't want less Rizzo, but I think that's probably mostly because I've grown up with it and love the scenes. Like, if you remove that, he goes under the gate to get his jelly beans. What's the point of that movie? Like, I, I need that in there. It's, it's, it's a focal point. But in terms of adaptation and the story, I can 100% see how that would be really jarring if you were not as familiar with it and you were just watching this randomly. I mean, like, wait, why are you stopping me from understanding my story? I don't want to hear about your jelly beans. That was such so. a long scene. The jelly bean scene is such a long scene. <laughs> oh, God bless my poor broken body. Yeah, uh. I, I, I thought, I thought that the him jumping off the gate and not being caught was the joke, and then there's another joke, right, yeah. that comes after that. Yeah, um, yeah. 
Well, why have one ending when you can have four, right? That's Return of the King to a nutshell. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyhow, so the, the, um, the way in which, of course, one of the other elements of having the narrator figure is it enabled them to stay quite close to the, like, to the actual text. Gonzo delivered a lot of direct Dickens quotes. Yeah. Which is, I think, itself a very apt piece of adaptation because the narrator figure, the voice of the narrator in Dickens' original is a very, is not only a very present, very important character, but one who breaks the fourth wall and addresses the reader quite frequently. Addresses, like Gonzo does, um, Gonzo has Rizzo there to make the objections and respond, right? The Dickens narrator responds to presumed objections, right? Yes. He quotes what was even in 1940 or 1843 a cliche saying that Marley was dead as a doornail. And then yeah. has a little parenthesis where he's like, I don't know why our ancestors why thought that doornails yeah. were particularly dead more than any other kind of ironmongery. Uh, but uh, anyway, so like that, that kind of aside to... Um, and then he repeats it afterwards. Is it dead as a doornail? Yeah. Um, and again, you can hear how, just as you can hear in the Princess Bride book, how it's a book that wants to be a screenplay, you can hear in Dickens' Christmas Carol that it's a novella that's designed for stage performance. Like you can hear the voice of the solo performer who's going to be who's going to be you know narrating the whole story. So they, they, they preserved that element and even something of the tone of that element in the Gonzo narrator character. And I thought that was a, that's really a kind of a next level piece of, uh, um, next level piece of, inter- of, of, of kind of uh, adaptation connection with the original mm-hmm. that I thought was really admirable. Well, I see that we have, um, we have long since lost our audience who have been discussing Muppet castings of a Muppet Lord of the Rings adaptation and whenever that uh, whenever that I've learned as a teacher over the years whenever that topic arises it's over you're done for it's you're over done for. Yeah, which is such a shame because I could talk about Muppets for the rest of the yeah. day the Muppet Christmas Carol for the rest of the day but I do understand this is this is still pretty phenomenal to think about <laughs> the suggestion earlier on where Vigo continues to play Aragorn but Eowyn is played by Miss Piggy Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. Just, it just works so well. But I hear it. I hear yeah. it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And no, that should be a, that can be a, that can be a separate thing. It would be actually interesting at some point down the road uh, to actually be, to have some of that kind of discussion. I mean, of course, there's always, it's always fun and funny uh, to think about Muppet casting for a Muppet Lord of the Rings adaptation. Um, but, um, but I think it would be fun, actually, to do some, like, let's actually think about adaptations ourselves. Let's do a little bit of that kind, even yeah, if it's well, just and, that sort of thing. And that's why it's such a good exercise when we're talking about adaptations. Like, let's actually go through that thought process. And Muppets are such a safe zone to think about. Yes. Because it's not going to offend anybody. And it's, it <laughs> yes. is going to be a bit of a joke. And it does have a bit of farce and parody in it. So, yeah, it's a safe starting point for thinking about casting and adaptation. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. 
Um, I feel like we can't completely finish without saying how wonderful it was having Michael Caine be Ebenezer Scrooge and unable to carry a tune in any way. Yeah. I absolutely loved him in that role. Yeah. No, it was good. Um, and actually, like, I actually really admired Michael Caine attempting to sing at various points. Yep. Like, I thought it was pretty effective, actually. Agreed. Um, it was very like Pierce Brosnan and Mamma Mia. It's just like, yeah, you give it your all. Go for it. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, by the way, do you have any comments about the 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 uh, when love is gone uh, thing? Oh my goodness, it's been everywhere. So many people have sent that to me. So when in love is gone is the song that was in the original version. I remember from the VHS in Scrooge's Christmas Past. He sits down with Belle in the snowy field, and she starts to sing this song when love is gone. And they cut it from the DVD version. And I was glad at the time because I always found that song slow, so I would skip through it. But I don't know. Now I can kind of really appreciate it, and it feels good having the whole thing back together again. And in terms of an emotional arc, it really does put the nail in that coffin to to have that relationship end and to see that kind of mournful moment of like love is gone. Yeah, you don't you don't have it. It's gone. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I so I the Disney Plus version of the Muppets Christmas Carol did not have it put back in. I think it, I think the song's available on Disney Plus, but they didn't put it back into the to the movie yet. Okay, um, there is a way you can watch it with it put back in on Disney Plus, but I feel like it's in the extras, and you have to like maybe it play is. it with it in it now or something. Right, because I just I yeah. just pull up the Muppet Christmas Carol on Disney Plus and watched it, and it's not in there. Um, I think it's in the I, like I think the whole movie is in the extras, okay. not just that scene. I think right. there's another way to watch it in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't know to look for that. Um, and I will admit, I watched it right before I heard about the like recovery of that scene. Um, and I was like, oh, well, that makes so much more sense because I oh, thought it, like it is a slow song. It's not that I can't see why people might, you know, some people might advocate for taking it out. Um but I thought it just left a bloody hole in the middle of yeah. that scene. She when gets you up, take out, it's just jarring. Yeah, she gets up and walks yeah. off, and she's what? What's more, she's walking off in a very clear. I am beginning a I'm song. I'm about to sing. Uh, yeah. uh, moment, <laughs> and then and then we just cut back to old Scrooge sitting by himself, looking at him like, what? what nothing happened. What happened? Doesn't like. It- the leave taking never the... occurs because it occurs in the song, right? You Doesn't know, it's... it cut to the cat chasing Rizzo or something. Like it's just something so separate. Yeah, they. they it's it was it was weird. Like I, I mean, yeah. it was it was clearly something missing. Like you know, he uh, old Scrooge is like, please don't take me back to that Christmas, right? And then they start having what is clearly going to become an awkward conversation, but it never gets there. Like it never gets there. And yeah. then, and then we're just, and then we, and, and I think it cut immediately back to Michael Caine on the sitting on the bench where they had been sitting yeah. um, and feeling sad about it. So it was like sufficiently clear that she did leave him. Yeah. But you are missing that yeah. emotional moment and you probably could accomplish it in other ways or take 30 seconds instead of two minutes and 30 seconds. But I think in terms of pacing and emotion and just editing, it's a good thing that it's still there. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So that was, that was, uh, that was, that was interesting, but yeah, it is funny how that's like all over the, like that, yeah. that whole issue has got gone viral again recently, but, um, Definitely. yeah. Okay. There it right. is. There it is. Right. Yes. In the extras, choose the Muppet Christmas Carol full length version. There you go. There you go. Uh, if you want to see it with the song put back in. Um, okay. Awesome. So um, 
we are overtime. Uh, and again, feel like we just scratched the surface, but yeah, that was fun. As always. <laughs> but let's go over what we're going to do next week. So next week, um, next we're going to do part two, where we're going to do these, uh, uh, you know, rearrangement adaptations, uh, where we're taking the Christmas Carol story and we're telling a different story, which is connect, which is linked back to it, but it's not just an attempt, like starring Charles Dickens to, you know, retell the story, like we're doing in all three of these versions. So. Right. Give people their homework, Maggie. What are people supposed to watch? I, I want to stick with Scrooge, and I want to stick with Spirited. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Spirited is definitely R-rated, so be aware that there are some crass jokes. It's Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds and some swearing, and it's new on Apple TV. Um, and I realize not everybody has that, so we won't spend a ton of time on that one, but it's a really interesting new telling, so I uh -huh. want to just kind of give an overview. Scrooge is the Bill Murray 1980s adaptation. I don't know where you can find it, but it's probably everywhere at this point. Yeah. And the Matt Smith. The Matt Smith. And that one is, so that's the, the Doctor Who Christmas Carol, which is just called um, A Christmas Carol, uh, the, is, the title of the, is the title of the episode. Yeah. Um, it's the one with, the, it's the, with uh, Matt Smith as the Doctor. Um, I don't remember which year it was the Christmas special for, but. Um, we'll find it. But yes. Are there any others that we've missed that we feel like we ought to? There are several people who are suggesting we do the Blackadder one. Oh, I've we, never seen that. That'd be I've fun. I haven't either. So let's let's talk sure. about it. Why not? Why okay. not? Let the people have their way. We'll talk <laughs> um, about the Blackadder adaptation to too. Check which version of the audiobook did you end up going with? I end up going with the Tim Curry. Which was good. I couldn't find the Tim Curry. I'm oh, so yeah? jealous. It's yeah. it's available. It's if you have an Audible sub subscription, it's included for free with the Audible subscription. I do, but I wonder if it was a region locked thing because it didn't show up on. Oh, my... it might be. It might be a not in the UK thing. Yeah. I got stuck with Hugh Grant, who was still good, but yeah, not Tim Curry. Yeah. 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 No, awesome. Tim, Tim Curry was good. He um, can be a little over the top with some of his voices, but it was like not inappropriate uh, in uh, in this in this version um yeah the other ones you were pointing to which oh of course i didn't get to even talk about young scrooge well so much more to talk about they totally changed young scrooge they had scrooge like unlike the 51 version the muppet version of scrooge is like he's he almost he doesn't change like he's he's grumpy he's even grumpy at Fozzywig's party talking about yeah. complaining about how much it cost much which is like costs. the opposite of the joke that they make in every other version of it. And then yeah. here with like uh, Sam the Eagle uh, as his, you know, he he digs his like mean old school, right? Yeah. And thrives there. So yeah. we see like the Muppets interestingly show Scrooge as this unchangingly, you know, grumpy, cantankerous, bugger. grumpy character all the way through yeah. until he has this sudden, his eyes are opened like for the first time in his life. Um, at the end of the story, which is almost the opposite version of the story. Yeah. That, and then uh, to use the line, light as a feather, giddy as a schoolboy, to demonstrate, you know, so actually giddy as a schoolboy. You were never giddy as a schoolboy. He was never boy. giddy as a schoolboy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's particularly, um, um, it's particularly uh, striking. But um, yeah. we didn't get to Fred and Clara, though I did like the casting of Fred we and can, Clara. We can always start with these, too, because yeah. I don't think we'll have as much to cover next week so we'll see uh, no only like four versions next week so. it's fine <laughs> it's fine it'll be good alright next week Scrooged Spirited 
and uh, the uh, Doctor, Doctor Who, Who A Christmas Adder. Carol Christmas Special. But we don't have to listen to A Christmas Carol this week, so that's extra time. And we don't have to what? Listen to A Christmas Carol or read that's it. That's true. Like, I've already reread already the book, that. so so, yeah. so so we get an extra film version to watch. There we go. Yeah, that, that'll be Blackadder. Awesome. Awesome. Very good. Well, thank you, everybody. Sorry for keeping you over time, um, but we will see you again next week for the second part of our Christmas Carol extravaganza. Thanks, everybody. Fun discussion today. See you guys next week. Bye now. Yeah.